Welcome to Kingdom 101. And especially to our SoundCloud listeners and subscribers, we want to welcome you back also. Uh, you may be wondering why there has not been uh, any uploads. That's because we have taken a break for the past one to two months and we are back for this year. So it's great to have you back listening with us. This evening for Kingdom 101, the title is The Point of No Return. On 22nd January this year, 2019, I think it was a very sad day because it was announced that in New York, they voted to legalize abortion up to birth. And they even allow non-doctors to commit abortions. If you want to know what the bill declares, it says that every individual who becomes pregnant has a fundamental right to choose to carry the pregnancy to term, to give birth to a child, or to have an abortion. It raises the state's recognition of pre-born babies older than 24 weeks as a potential homicide victim. It removes abortion from the penal code entirely, and it allows licensed health practitioners other than full doctors to commit abortions. Now, you know, it was a very sad day, and even in the Christian circles, um, a lot of these things were shared, and as if 24 weeks is not bad enough, that's six months, right, for a fetus, a baby that's being grown within the mother's womb. They've pushed it all the way through to a full term. Well, just when you think it can't get any worse, today there's an article that has gone around. Today is 29th January, just one week after. After legalizing infanticide, New York is now pushing for assisted suicide rights. So they're hitting those within the womb, and they're hitting those that are at the end of life. Is humanity getting to a point of no return? Have we reached a point of no return? You know, we're looking at these things, and like, have we come to a stage where we just keep going on, and there's just no turning back anymore? What is this thing called the point of no return? If you look at the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it's defined as a critical point at which turning back or reversal is not possible. Worded in another dictionary, the Cambridge Dictionary, it is the stage at which it is no longer possible to stop what you're doing and when its effects cannot now be avoided or prevented. Now, of course, we are using this just as an example, and I wanted to catch your attention with something that is very current. But where God is concerned, and that's what we are interested in in this teaching, where God is concerned, is there a point of no return, where turning back is no longer possible? Let's ask ourselves this question. Can anyone stray so far from God where there is no more hope of ever coming back to Him? If so, where is this point? What is this point? How do we know if we have crossed this point? How are some safeguards, or what are some safeguards that we never even come close to this point of no return? And the funny thing and the interesting thing is that there's no clear line for you to understand. Now, knowing us, now if we know there's a line, we will come really close to it. And so this is what we want to learn and explore this evening. When we get to Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 to 32, this is another difficult passage to handle. And as much as I want to share with you and learn about this thing, it throws up even more questions. And these two verses, they mention the unforgivable sin 
or the unpardonable sin, the point of no return. What exactly is this? Some th- used to think that, is it murder? Now, if it's murder, then we've got to ask, is it then abortion? Because if we have committed abortion, then it is murder because you're taking away a life. Some have considered divorce. Is that the unpardonable sin? Some have even said perhaps it is suicide. We must consider the context carefully as well as other parallel passages in Scripture. And as we go through, I'd like to suggest to you that it might be more straightforward than we imagine. However, straightforward does not mean it is easy to accept. And so I will do my very best to share with you what I have gleaned so that at the end of the day, you can then make your own decisions. I think at this point, it's important that we pray and then we read the text and we'll get into the teaching proper. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for scriptures, Lord, always. But Lord, this evening we ask, speak to us clearly by your Holy Spirit. We don't want to take things out of context We want to read it and hear your voice and hear the direction of our King. Because, Lord, we are your people and we want to live rightly that we may bring you glory and not bring you shame. And so will you be with me and be with everyone listening that our hearts will be ready to receive and to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 to 32. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Two simple verses, but I think we have to unpack it carefully. One word that we want to explore first is this word blasphemy. It's mentioned a couple of times. It's repeated in a parallel line, words that is spoken against someone. We need to understand what this is so that we can understand the rest of the verse with this foundation that we have. What is blasphemy? The Bible dictionaries will tell you it is a profane or a contemptuous speech or writing against a person. Blasphemy is also defined as slander, any word or action that insults or devalues another being. So it's not just a simple, you know, I put you down and, you know, I call you names. It's not just that. It's a lot more serious than that. There's contempt that's involved. There's a very negative tone that comes in that seeks to tear down. Now, in the Old Testament, blasphemy would be considered as um, insults against God and His Word. In other words, even if you would insult God's Word, that's considered blasphemy. If you doubt his power, you're like, are you sure or not, you know, God? That, that would be blasphemy because you don't think that he's good enough. You mock his nature. Are you like this, God? Are you sure you're like that? Mocking his nature, that would constitute blasphemy. And so Israel was warned, you be careful. Don't you ever curse God. Don't you question him with a wrong tone. Don't you take his name in vain. All that would be blasphemous. Or in Numbers 15, verse 30, it could be a deliberate disobeying of God's law. You know this is His word, you go against it, 
That will be insulting the commands of God. That's blasphemy. It's not only for the people of God. It is also directed at the Gentiles. We have many examples of the Gentile kings mocking God, especially when Israel was exiled. God's name was blasphemed among the nations. The enemies scoffed at God to say, you call this your God. I mean, we took you out. No? We took your land. We took everything. And you say your God is a great God. How come your God did not protect you? All that blasphemy. That's in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, it's a much broader usage. It's not just blasphemous words or actions against God, but also against human beings. The term would encompass a broader usage. Blasphemy against God, same thing, same context. We can insult God directly, either by mocking His word or by rejecting His revelation or His messengers. Now, the most obvious would be Jesus. Jesus was accused of blasphemy when He Himself claimed to be the Messiah. So every time He says, I'm equal to God, I am God, I'm the one that is to come. I'm the one who is, who is God, like God, and I have the name of God. Uh, people get upset with him. The Pharisees were upset with him. He says, I can forgive sins. They get upset with him because they think that he is now blaspheming against God. Now, Jesus was accused of blaspheming against God, but the Jews after that, they blasphemed against Jesus. So Jesus is the messenger of God. Now they blaspheme the messenger, that means they blaspheme against God. So they insult Jesus, how? By mocking Him, by calling Him names, by challenging Him, by taunting Him, by spitting at Him, by crucifying Him. And so they were blaspheming against God by rejecting God's revelation as well as His messenger. At the same time, our conduct, the people of God, our conduct, we can cause other people to blaspheme God and His Word. And so if you look at the New Testament in Titus chapter 2, verse 5, for example, instructions to the women to be godly wives. Paul was writing to Titus saying, this is how you must tell the women to behave, that the Word of God may not be blasphemed. So friends, your conduct and my conduct, if we don't live rightly, we give people reason or opportunity to insult God. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. And so if you are working under someone, friends, don't be a bad employee or a bad servant, right? If you are cursing and swearing against your bosses and your people are listening to you as a Christian doing that, they have reason now to blaspheme against God and His Word because of your conduct. Our own adherence even to false doctrine can cause others to blaspheme the truth. And so if we live... Uh, with, again, like the prosperity gospel. Everything is all about money. We go to church and, you know, for those kind of things and kind of gain. You notice on the Facebook how many insults there are now against God and against Christianity. So blasphemy is not just directly against God. We as God's people, we can give cause for people to blaspheme against our God. 
Also, blasphemy can be made against other human beings. Slander, derision, mocking of any kind in the New Testament, condemned. So it's not just against God that we are not to blaspheme. We are also not supposed to speak evil against ourselves. We are to speak kindly and to bring honor and to speak blessings. We are not to have malice. And especially against leaders and authorities, we should not be insulting them, calling them names, mocking them also. So you see, one term, blasphemy, extends to so much. Not just against God, but against one another also. But right at the end, here's a little reminder. Because we follow the example of Jesus, Christians must also be prepared to be blasphemed against, to be insulted and mocked for His sake. Now, in that kind of a situation, when people call us names and throw things at us and do things to us and blaspheme against us on account of our faith in God, in such situations, we may be tempted to blaspheme God under stress and persecution. And we'll talk about that in a little while. So with this as a foundation, just one word here. Now we understand what blasphemy is all about. We can now go back to the text. And we see that Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Aren't you thankful for this one phrase? I look at this and I say, well, thank you, God. <laughs> I know I've been callous with my words. I know perhaps you know, I have not been exemplary, even in the way that I should be blessing people. I may have spoken something against someone. I may have blasphemed even against God without even realizing it. But let's look at the whole context here. And I love the word therefore, because it links to something that is above. If we don't consider that, if these verses are taken out of context, I tell you, many of us would not just be guilty of just blasphemy against each other or against the Son of Man. We might also be guilty of committing blasphemy against the Spirit. I mean, let's be honest. Have we not at one point or other doubted perhaps the work of the Spirit? Have we not insulted Him in some way, mocked Him in some way by not considering who He really is and what He can do? I believe so. And the best example is even right now, there's still this whole argument of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And I know of people who have been so adamant that this is not the Holy Spirit, this is the devil. Sounds very much like what the Pharisees said, right? And yet, many of these later on end up champions of the charismatic movement when they themselves get baptized in the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues and have manifestations. And then now they turn around and say, this is of the Holy Spirit. Or some other examples, if not the Holy Spirit directly, have we not at one point perhaps doubted miracles, some manifestations, perhaps some phenomenon that we have heard about um, that we may be uncomfortable yeah, with some of these experiences? Are we really be discerning? Or are we skeptical, perhaps cynical? Or have we been blasphemous? Thankfully, there's this one word called therefore. <laughs> and we have to link this therefore back to what the context is. If you remember our past teachings, Matthew chapter 12 is really about the increasing opposition against Jesus. More and more, we are seeing the Pharisees come against Jesus and they are just challenging him an outright face-to-face -face confrontation. 
And what came before this, the Pharisees challenged Jesus about the casting out of demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus looked at them and clarifies and says that this was done by the power of the Spirit of God or of the Holy Spirit. Now, one point I want to make very clear to you. If you see this whole incident, it is no longer now about Bible interpretations or theological perspective. The Pharisees had come to a point where it became very ugly. It became very personal. All they wanted to do was to tear Jesus down. And so the key words, as I mentioned just now, contempt was there. Malice was there. They were ready to just discredit Jesus, whatever the cost may be. And I believe that might have overtaken their hearts. And so Jesus said in verse 30, one verse before this passage, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore, I say to you. In other words, listen carefully. If you fall into this category, listen carefully. Pay close attention. Now, was Jesus pronouncing a judgment on his enemies? Was he pronouncing something on the Pharisees? I say to you, no. He was declaring a warning. He was issuing a very, very clear warning. As always, Jesus would use the situation and the opportunity to teach, not just to his enemies, but also to his disciples. And Jesus was issuing a very, very stern warning. And if you paraphrase this, you could almost hear Jesus saying, hey, you can live wrongly and there's always room for you to turn back. And God will forgive. You can call me names. You can insult me and you can still get away with it. But careful, guys. You're not there yet, but you're coming really close to the point of no return. This was not a judgment. This was still just a warning. Jesus was saying, don't cross the line. You're not there. But if you keep going like that, you will reach a point of no return. And don't tell me, I didn't tell you. Don't cross that line. And I believe Jesus is issuing this very clearly, not just to the Pharisees, but also to the people that might be listening in. Now, have the Pharisees committed the unforgivable sin at that point? I don't believe so. But if they continue in that track, if they keep pushing, they will reach that eventually. Now, here's the irony. You know, the Pharisees were the teachers of the law. They were the ones who would be very familiar with blasphemous sins mentioned in the Old Testament. In fact, their job was to help people stay away from that point. And that's why they will put fencing around that law to say, you cannot do this, you cannot do that. Don't insult the name of God. Don't take the name of God in vain. And so the Jews were so serious that they cannot even say a few things. They were so guarded in that. That was the entire irony of this whole situation. But for them, it became religious. It became ridiculous. And I made an interesting discovery from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. And it says that many Jews believe that death forgave all sins. You remember, if you sin against God, the penalty was death. But when you die, this is what they believe. Death forgave all sins. Everything is okay. You just have a shorter life. That's it. That's why the man who lives righteous will live long. You follow? And so if you want a long life, you live correctly. But if you don't live correctly, you have a short life. But death forgave all sins. But Jesus now calls 
blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and eternal sin in this age and the age to come. Now that's serious. So if you think from a Pharisee point of view, they're okay, you see. Because no matter what it is, they're helping people. They are not committing that yet. And even if they did unconsciously, death forgave all sins. And here Jesus comes on the scene and tells them and warns them, excuse me, you're warning other people. I'm warning you right now, but with greater seriousness, just in case you don't realize this. You can blaspheme against me. You can call me names. But when you begin to insult the Holy Spirit, you are coming really close to the point of no return. At this point, as I read this text, I ask this one question. Really? Uh, unforgivable. When do we reach that point? How far is it? How close am I to this point of no return? Will God really be like that? That He never forgives ever? We want to understand this by looking and reviewing at, number one, the nature of God. So that we don't look at God and say, wow, you know, this is such a mean God, a bad God, you know, a terrible God. We need to know the God whom we serve. And it says in Psalm 103 verse 8, The Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. All through the Old Testament, this is repeated over and over again. If you read the Old Testament, don't just read it as a book of laws. You've got to read the person of God there. And even in the administration of the law, you see this trait this person of God being revealed. He is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. If you don't believe, you just read the entire Old Testament and see how many hundreds of years in the example of Israel, chance after chance after chance given to Israel before God finally pulls the plug. And even after He does that, there's still hope and restoration for Israel. Don't believe me? Read the Bible, right? We can say, oh no, Israel is gone. No, read your Bible. Israel will be saved. There will be a restoration again. Can you see? God is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. Remember the story of Jonah? After God finally gets him into Nineveh and he preaches that shortest sermon in the Bible and Nineveh repents, Jonah sulks. He gets upset. He says, why? I knew it. I do want to preach your, this repentance message because I know who you are. You are going to forgive them. I know that you are gracious and you're a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness. That's why I didn't want to go there. Jonah, as a messenger of God, knew the person of God. And because of who he is and what he is, he institutes a sacrifice system where if you would sacrifice the sins will be covered, right? And every year you get a new start. You get a new beginning and you start all over again. And then finally, he sends Jesus who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. A better sacrifice and a better substitute in Jesus. All sins can be forgiven through Jesus. Amen. And that's why in the Bible, in 1 John 1.9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? 
Because God is merciful, He's holy, He's just, and He requires a sacrifice, and it's already been given, it's perfect. And so He wants to pardon. Pardon is always available through confession and through repentance. Forgiveness is always available. However, sadly, forgiveness is not always sought. You see, we know the nature of God. He is loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And He gives us a solution so that we can always come to Him. At this point, I hope you're catching this, this one truth. It takes a lot to anger God. It takes a lot to anger God and for Him to cut anyone off for all eternity. Do you realize this even up at this point? But now we must consider the role of the Spirit of God. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verses 8 to 11, He says that when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is the Holy Spirit at work. And He has always been doing it and He will continue to do it. His role is to convict all of us, every person of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, always pointing to Jesus, drawing people to Jesus, and to the good news of the kingdom of God. Think about this. This is totally consistent with the nature of God, who is loving, who is gracious, who is slow to anger. So the Spirit of God is always there. Will you come? Will you come? I'm showing this to you. This is not right. I'm not condemning you. I'm showing you there's a better way. I'm pointing you to Jesus. I'm telling you there's a sacrifice. I'm telling you you can be restored to God. I'm telling you that you can be with Him for all eternity. This is the role of the Holy Spirit of God. And so if we consider the nature of, of God, the solution that comes through the Lamb of God, and the role of the Spirit of God, can you see that this point of no return is pushed so far away that God never wants anyone to ever cross this point of no return? I want you to know that first. Because I don't want you to think that the line is just next to you. It's like, oh, every small thing, bad, bad, and oh, unforgivable, oh, unforgivable. No. This is the God that we serve. And that's why it's called good news. And the Holy Spirit will always draw us. And so with that, we ask ourselves, what is this blasphemy against the Spirit? What is this unforgivable sin? Friends, it's not simply an act that you do or a sin that is committed or a callous word every now and then, but it is a rejection of God and His offer of forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Where you never want to have anything to do with Him, no matter how hard the Holy Spirit chases after you, you just keep rejecting Him, mocking Him, insulting Him, and to say, I don't need you, I don't want you, I can do this by myself. The Apologetic Study Bible defines it this way. Blasphemy against the Spirit means consciously rejecting his incontrovertible testimony to the truth of the gospel. Thankfully, like I said, it takes quite a while before one reaches this point of no return. But make no mistake, there is a point of no return. And so there are some cautions that we can learn from the behavior of the Pharisees. For them, it was a non-belief. They just refused to believe. They rejected Jesus and the witness of the Holy Spirit. 
At that point in time, it was demonstrated through the casting out of demons, which they refused to accept. But did it just start there? Was it just that act that Jesus did? If you go deeper, you will see that it is because of pride, because of a hardness of heart that is within them. Hold that within your minds and your heart for a moment. Because if you don't deal with these things, it can push you to that point of no return. As we move on, I have a next question for you. Is this point of no return applicable to believers? I mean, after all, we just learned, right? We just said that if you reject the Holy Spirit, then you can get to a point of no return. And I believe, seated here amongst us and many who are listening, and we are believers and we're Christians. Obviously, we have received the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so is it applicable to us? Many times we will look at the Pharisees and we will say, oh, these are non-believers. But let's be fair to them. Uh, they were worshippers of God, you know. But then again, okay, let's just say that they were not believers of Jesus. They did not accept Him. How about us? Is it applicable to us? And this is where we've got to go out a little bit from Matthew. We want to consider another passage in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 to 12. And this is the other time that this one statement is quoted in the Gospels, but in a different context. It's recorded by Luke in verse 8 of chapter 12. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now you do realize that Jesus was talking to who? The disciples. He was talking to those who believed in Him. Then comes that line. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So these instructions were given to believers, to disciples. And sandwiched inside this instruction and warning is one phrase that says, if you will insult the Holy Spirit, if you will mock the Holy Spirit, then this sin will not be forgiven. If you deny me and not rely on the Holy Spirit, then that's going to, whoever denies me, I will deny him. Whoever confesses me, I will confess him before the Father. Do you remember that teaching? So I want you to see this context. It's a warning against denying Jesus in the face of persecution and hardship because there's a great temptation for us to buckle. You refuse the help and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You rely on your own strength. You cross the point of no return. But let me encourage you. Even so, we see in the Bible how hard it is to reach this point of no return. In the case of Peter, Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three times. In Matthew, it was recorded, he cursed even. And later on, Peter repented and was restored. The disciples all deserted Jesus and they were all forgiven and restored. So that gives us some assurance and some comfort, isn't it? It's not a one-time and gone but there's a chance for you to come back. Look at Paul. Paul persecuted the Christians. 
Not only did he blaspheme against God and the Holy Spirit, forced the Christians to blaspheme also. But when encountered by Jesus through the Holy Spirit, he responded through repentance and was forgiven. So friends, do we have hope? Is it so easy to cross this point of no return? It's not. But is it a warning to believers still? Yes, it is, I believe, if you look at the context. Now you may say, okay, one verse, are you interpreting this correctly or not? I say, okay, let's look at some other verses in the New Testament that say about the same things. Not with the same words, but about the same things. And if we look at the book of Hebrews, and again, there's no coincidence, Pharisees, Hebrews, Hebrews written to the believers who were Hebrews. First warning, against falling away, apostasy. They wanted to give up the faith. They want to fall away. They want to run away. They want to go back to Judaism because they thought the sacrifices were there. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. So in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, the writer says, it is impossible. Now, impossible sounds like the point of no return, right? It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Not much repentance, to return. If it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, paraphrase, it's the point of no return. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame, insult, mocking Him, blasphemy. Now let's understand the context. The writer was saying to the believers, friends, will you, move? will you move to perfection? Stop going back to the fundamentals. Stop revisiting all those things. By now, you ought to be teachers. You should be matured Christians by now. Come on, grow up. Now why was the writer saying that? Because the implication is this. If you are immature, if you're not grounded already and moving on to perfection, you are prone to fall away, to abandon the faith in a time of difficulty, bringing shame to Jesus and the work of the cross. Now, if you do that, there's no repentance for that. Now, is this consistent? Do you remember 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3? It speaks of a falling away before the day of the Lord. And I want you to check this. And I want you to pray this. And I want you to prepare for this. As much as the church loves to talk about revival and saving of souls before Jesus comes, the Bible warns us also of a falling away. So whilst we rejoice that many come into the fold, we must be careful that we don't fall away out from the fold. There's also a warning against sinning willfully. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Does it sound like the point of no return? But what do you then expect? But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And the writer goes on. If anyone rejects the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, of how much 
Worst punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and, listen, insulted the Spirit of grace. So there's an insulting of the Holy Spirit, treating the work of Jesus as a common thing, not precious enough. You know already, and you still continue to live in sin willfully. Now, this is very consistent with the Old Testament's warning about presumptuous sin. This word presumptuous sin is what you want to remember. Presumptuous sin means you know the law, but you presume upon the goodness of God. You presume upon His grace. It's okay, lah. His grace will cover me, lah. His grace is abundant, lah. His grace is very good, one, lah. You see, I do this 20 times, I'm still alive, what? That's presumption. Now, you cross that point, you don't even know it. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin after that. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 talks about the conscience that is seared, that has calloused now, that's hardened, the heart that has just grown stiff to the mercies of God. And so you just keep doing the wrong things, and then every day, every week when you come to church, you know, take communion and say, ah, it's okay, lah, you know, it's all right. It's all right. The Bible is very clear about willful sinning. The next warning is against bitterness and spiritual adultery. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. What's the context? Context is simply, it's real tough, persecution, challenges, hardship coming against you. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Okay, get back on track. You're on Simon, keep running this race. Pursue peace with all people, holiness, keep hanging on to holiness, looking carefully, lest anyone falls short of the grace of God. And here's the key lest any root of bitterness. When you go through a tough time, it's very easy to become bitter. Now, when you get bitter through this, by this, many become defiled. Have you heard of the saying, hurt people, hurt people? And so if you have not dealt with bitterness, defilement comes, you will cause trouble not just for yourself, but for others. Then it says, lest there be any fornicator. Now when the Bible uses this word fornicator, it speaks of spiritual adultery. You are betrothed to Christ, but you are worshipping idols and you are doing other things and so you are fornicating spiritually. Or a profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now what does this mean? We know that Esau, when he was so hungry, just to satisfy his hunger, very quickly he said, you want my birthright? La, take. La. I mean, what use is his birthright? All I want is that my, my stomach gets satisfied first. He sold his birthright. Now if you bring that parallel in, the question is, do we succumb to fleshly desires and we are willing to give up our birthright, born-again people, children of God in Christ? Our spiritual heritage is a lot more important to us than the fleshly cravings that we want to fulfill. Verse 17, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance. 
though he sought it diligently with tears. Does that sound like the point of no return? In the book of Galatians and 1 John, two more warnings. Again, the warning is against gratifying the flesh. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 to 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God is not insulted. <laughs> For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. One thing always boggled me. Isn't it true that John 3.16 says that if I believe, I will have everlasting life? So why do I need to sow to the Spirit to have everlasting life? So you can't take one verse and say, I like that, I don't like the other one. You've got to take both verses and understand that when you begin to believe and you move into everlasting life, you are expected to continue now to live in the Spirit, to sow into the things of the Spirit. So that at the end, you will reap everlasting life. What's the context of Galatians? Paul was reminding the people, come on, you have freedom in Christ. Christ has set you free. Don't come under the yoke of the law again. But if you are free, now use your freedom for the glory of Jesus. Don't use your freedom to gratify your flesh and think that you, know, you can do anything you want and because Jesus died for you already, everything is cool. Redirect your freedom. Serve one another through love. Note the works of the flesh mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. All these are the manifestations and the works of the flesh. If you keep sowing to this, you will reap of the flesh. And right at the end, it says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this should make us sit up and read the passage one more time, meditate and say, Holy Spirit, can you please tell me what this means? But if we look at this in relation to all that we are studying and see a consistent thread and a consistent message that's there, there's a very clear warning to say there's a line you don't want to cross. You have been bought with a price. You have the Holy Spirit. You have been washed by the blood. You have experienced the grace of God. You understand the power of the Holy Spirit. Now live correctly by the Spirit. Don't live presumptuously. Don't live carelessly. Don't live sinning willfully. In the words of Matthew chapter 12, which we are studying, every sin can be forgiven. Praise the Lord. However, if you continue to sin willfully, you are sowing to the flesh over and over again, you will reap corruption. And corruption, is, it doesn't just mean, oh, I keep smoking and I die earlier. It's not a physical death because the context is paralleled with everlasting life, which means death is everlasting death. If you keep presuming upon the grace of God, if you ignore the witness and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, if you ignore the, the warning and the love and the cajoling even of the people of the Spirit to tell you to stop it, you keep moving towards that point of no return. And you never know when you might just cross it. Finally, there's a warning against the sin leading to death. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, which means he will pray. 
And he will give him life. God will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. Now, there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Another difficult verse, huh? And let's look at the context again. This is right at the end of 1 John. But in the beginning, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess he is faithful, he will forgive us. That means all sins can be forgiven. Praise the Lord. But doesn't mean you anyhow go and sin and keep asking for forgiveness. Because in 1 John chapter 3, he says, those born of God, they do not sin. In other words, friends, if you are born of God, of the Holy Spirit, you do not sin. But in case you do, confess and all sin will be forgiven. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to help those who are struggling with this sin because we know we are not without sin, though as people born of the Holy Spirit and of God, we should not sin. We pray for these who are struggling, except for those who have committed the sin leading to death. And I believe John is saying, it's not that you don't pray for them. His point is this. There's no point praying because this person has already crossed the point of no return. There's hardness of heart. There's nothing else you can do. Even if you pray, nothing is going to happen there. Now, this sounds really very harsh. I would advocate just keep praying because you never know. But he's making a very, very strong point. Because John, of all people, although he's the apostle of love, he does not make light of sin. So, is this warning applicable to Christians? I've presented the scriptures to you. I want you to make that decision so that you will process it. I told you what we are going to learn might be fairly straightforward. It seems quite obvious, but it's not quite as easy to accept. Is it correct? I don't want to accept this. No, I mean, I can't. But this is what Scripture says, and this is what I need to declare. And you need to study this, judge this for yourself, and then live out of this conviction. Let's ask two more questions that would be even more pointed. We've already asked a very broad question. Where God is concerned, is there a point of no return where turning back is no longer possible? Well, yes, but isn't it wonderful? It, it's quite a long way, lah. Huh? God is so gracious. He's so loving. Can you smile at me? All of you are looking very, very serious. We've got a good God, amen? We have a loving God, amen? He's merciful, yes? I want you to hear that also, yeah? But there is a point of no return. Where is this point? I don't know. But be careful of your heart. Be careful of pride. Be careful of presumption. Be careful of hardness. Let's ask two specific questions now. Can Christians ever commit the unforgivable sin? Paraphrase, can Christians ever reach that point of no return? This theologian, R.C. Sproul, this is what he writes. Humanly speaking, everyone who is a Christian is capable of committing the unforgivable sin. Capable. However, I believe that the Lord of glory who has saved us and sealed us in the Holy Spirit will never let us commit that sin. Thanks be to God that the sin that is unpardonable is not a sin that God allows His people to commit. Now let me explain something here first. A lot depends what your theological perspective is. 
So you need to study that. If you're an Armenian, if you're a Calvinist, you hold different points of view, okay? And so this is what Sproul says. I respect him personally. He's a great theologian. I've learned much from him. And this is really assuring, and this is very, very comforting. But I don't fully agree with his position here. By saying that God does not allow, I understand it personally for me, to mean that God will keep pursuing us relentlessly by the Holy Spirit. That's what I read as God will not allow. However, as we have already covered above, we can still reject the Holy Spirit. If that is not even possible, then I always ask this question, why is there even a need for a warning? Right? If it's not possible, it's never allowed, then no need to warn me at all. But the scripture is so clear, written to believers. And so I want you to process this for yourself because I don't know what your perspective might be, but I would say, love the blessings, heed the warnings. I love the assurance. I love it that God is gracious. I love it that it's, it takes a lot to anger Him, that His mercies are new each morning, that He is abounding in love and loving kindness and grace and, and all that. It's comforting. and I love all that. But the warnings in the Bible are there for a reason. They're not there for fun. The second question is really personal. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? So once again, what it is not, okay? It is not a specific sin like murder. Murderers have come back to the Lord. They have been restored. It's not about abortion. It's not about divorce. Even now, there's a lot of talk about suicide because just recently, I think it's today or yesterday, another pastor committed suicide. We're seeing ministers taking their own lives. So it's not about specific sins, okay? You agree? Every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. What the unforgivable sin is when we act or we speak contemptuously against the Holy Spirit, doubting Him, ignoring Him, rejecting Him, insulting Him, and never want to have anything else to do with Him. And so David Platt wrote this. It's pretty safe to conclude that if you're worried about having committed this sin, you're showing by your concern that you have not fully and finally rejected the Spirit's testimony. Another writer, David Matthew, he writes, if you worry about unforgivable sin, then most likely you're not there, not yet. Because your conscience is still alive. You're still being tugged at in your heart. You're still desiring to live correctly. You know something is not correct and you want to live that correctly. But can I just tell you, be careful, because worry doesn't mean it's repentance. Huh? Sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, maybe it's wrong. No, no, no. You just worry, worry, worry. But can you move to the next step? If you know something is wrong, will you ask for forgiveness? Will you turn back to the Lord? And asking for forgiveness even is a bit different from repentance, you know. Forgive me, Lord, and God forgives you. Doesn't mean you have repented fully, right? You have not turned back correctly to live rightly. So confess, repent, don't have to worry anymore, live free, live worry-free. The scary thing is that some today teach that there's no longer a need for repentance. You assess that, would that mean presumption then? And I'll say, be very careful. 
because it's a very fine line then. And so the point of no return. We open this teaching with the shocking news of how far the pro-choice movement can go and they're still pushing the limits. Every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven if this pro-choice movement would stop and would return to God and His ways. But if they don't heed the warning and the promptings of the Holy Spirit and from the people of the Spirit, i.e. the church, but oppose, insult, mock, they will one day reach the point of no return. But for the rest of us here, have we crossed or reached the point of no return? I don't think so. You're all here listening to kingdom teachings, <laughs> desiring to live for Jesus, to serve Him on kingdom assignment. Thank God for His grace. But don't be presumptuous or complacent. I leave you with these five simple points so that you can take heed of the word of the king. Point number one, heed the warnings of Jesus. It's for both unbelievers as well as for believers. I hope you are convinced of this by now. Be very careful of pride, of bitterness, of hardness of heart, of presumption. Point number two, be very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. When He prompts you, confess, repent. He never condemns you. He's doing His part as a gracious God to make sure that you continue to move in the correct way. And repentance is to turn and to return. And in our context, we call it the alignment check. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Be sensitive to Him. Point number three, never give up on Jesus, however difficult it might be. In the face of opposition, even persecution, when you're moving on kingdom assignment, rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Never, never, never give up on Jesus. Don't walk alone. Stay together in community so that we can encourage one another as people of the Spirit. Never give up on Jesus. Point number four, represent Jesus well. Don't give cause for others to blaspheme God on account of our bad testimony. So let's live well. Let's represent and reveal Jesus wherever He sends us to so that we ourselves do not blaspheme Him unknowingly and cause others to reject Him. And finally, as a kingdom community, don't speak evil of others. Don't slander. Don't blaspheme against anyone. Least of all, and most of all, our leaders and those in authority. It's just too easy. They are so easy targets. Anytime we feel upset, only just point a finger at the leaders. And the week that has gone by, our government leaders, our military leaders have come under so much flack. And I hope you are not adding to it at all. By the Holy Spirit, let your words be seasoned with salt, full of grace, blessing and honouring one another. And so, dear friends, I've come to the end of this rather interesting topic. And you know, the one that teaches learns the most. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to teach that I can learn. But I pray that this has been helpful for you so that you too can go teach others that we can live right and for His glory. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we want to acknowledge You. We want to honour You. We want to glorify You. 
and we want to bless you. We know that often, Lord, we pray to Abba Father, and that's correct. We cry out to Jesus, and that's correct. But this evening, O oh Lord, because the teaching is about you, Holy Spirit, we give you all honor. Thank you, Lord, Holy Spirit, for drawing us to Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for prompting us, convicting us, so that we can always have an opportunity to turn back to you. Holy Spirit, will you empower us, O oh Lord, to live right for you and for the glory of the name of Jesus. That there will always be a readiness in each of us to turn and to return to Jesus and to Abba Father because of your leading and of your enablement. And so we thank you, Lord, that there's no condemnation for every person here or those listening in as we rely on you and as we acknowledge you. Lord, never, never allow us to come so close to it that we miss it and we slip past that point of no return. We thank you for your love and for your grace. And we give you glory and honor as we close this session. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.